Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome again to Health Matters Radio. This is Dr. Ned Hoke today, joining you again. And uh, I've been uh, quite thrilled with some of our recent guests, and I'm looking ahead at guests coming up. And so what I'm going to do today is begin to read from some of the upcoming guests, which we some of, either we have them scheduled or we're anticipating scheduling them. Uh, so um, we won't have uh, somebody, somebody other than myself uh, reading from these books that I've been getting and getting ready for publication, with, not publication, but revealing with you. And the one that's caught my eye that is germane to what we're living with now in terms of the COVID period is a, a deep and profound discussion of what's, what um, the world of healthcare for all is about. And of course, naturally, there's been a lot of discussion of this, and, and you hear about it practically every day, that, that there's a lot of thought that's in today's world that um, the for-profit healthcare system has really shown up to be uh, very incapable of managing such a large matter as the COVID-19 uh, situation, but recognizing that the, the, this is only the most recent event of, of the showing this inability. So uh, Gerald Friedman is a, a professor at the University of Massachusetts uh, at, at Massachusetts Amherst. And um, he is, uh, he says that the U.S. healthcare system is both expensive and inefficient providing poor or no care to millions. And for dec decades, the Americans have wrestled, wrestled with how to fix it. This is the back of the book here. In his brilliant polemic, Gerald Friedman, former advisor to Bernie Sanders, recommended that we build on what works. A Medicare system that is already efficiently provides health care for millions of Americans. He demolishes the arguments of opponents of reform and their claim that health care should be treated like any other commodity, demonstrating that health care is distinctive and cannot be satisfactorily provided by the market alone. The solution, he argues, is staring us right in the face. Enroll everyone in Medicare and improve the health care of all Americans. So that's what we'll be reading from today. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, visiting with Professor Friedman and be able to you know, question him. And I think it's, it's possible uh, that we'll actually be able to go by this time. Uh, I actually get a chance to visit with Professor Friedman. We might be actually back in the studio so we can then receive phone calls and have our listeners who have things to say about their feelings and what their their needs may be in terms of uh, health care and whether they, in their own way, either support or don't support the health care for all principle. And of course, many of us uh, have you know, long listened to various people. And of course, we have our own local people like Mike Smith and others, the former board member of the uh, 
Santa Rosa College and a uh, very, very outspoken healthcare for all advocate. But our, our town, Sonoma, is filled with people who are strongly uh, advocate in advocacy positions, excuse me, to talk about this topic in a, in a positive way, and others who have other ideas as well. But anyway, coming back to Professor Friedman's book, he begins with, uh, in his introduction, he, it's The Failure of Free Market Healthcare. So we'll be reading from this book now through the, the program today. Alex Smith died in J J June 27, 2017, less than a month after 26. While his death certificate lists diabetic ketoacidosis as the cause of disease, he was killed by the health insurance industry. He developed three years developed diabetes three years before his death, and his condition was treated effectively with insulin, a product developed over the century ago by Frederick Banting and other Canadian scientists who donated the patent to the world so that no one should be denied this life-saving medication. For 80 years, insulin was widely available because of the lack of patent protection that allowed many companies to produce a competing gen generic varieties. In the 1980s, however, a new and improved insulin versions were developed, innovations that made insulin a little safer and more effective, while also giving drug companies an opportunity to patent variants and an incentive to stop producing the older, less profitable generic insulin. There are now only three companies producing insulin, and they are ruthlessly exploiting their market power to profit of the, off the 30 million Americans with diabetes. In the last few years, insulin prices have soared, increasing by nearly 300% from an average price of $4.34 per milliliter in 2002 to $12.92 $12 per milliliter in 2013. Prices in the United States are much higher than elsewhere. Many Canadians and Europeans pay barely one-sixth of what Americans pay. In late uh, 2017, Humalong, a fast-acting uh, insulin, cost $115 in the United States versus $20 in Canada, almost a six-fold markup. Unless we are to believe that the manufacturer is selling at a loss in California, excuse me, in Canada, out of charitable impulse toward Canadian diabetics, then we can only conclude that the manufacturer, Eli Lilly, is making a lot of money off diabetics in the United States. To cope with rising prices, diabetics resort to self-rationing, stretching their out their supplies, often with toxic results. For Alex Smith, the high cost of insulin was literally deadly. When he aged out of his parents' health care insurance at age 26, he was working at a restaurant job that did not provide health insurance. Because he earned too much to qualify for Medicaid or other public assistance, he looked to buy health insurance policy in Minnesota Health Exchange. Even with government subsidies, a decent health insurance plan cost much more than he could afford on his restaurant, restaurant salary. The only policy he could find had a $7,600 deductible, which he would have to pay before the insurance companies would help him pay the $1,300 a month for his insulin. Passing on an insurance plan that would not help him for at least six months, Smith played, planned to pay for his insulin out of pocket. Without ready cash to pay for another dose, he tried to stretch out his supply and make it until his next paycheck. He didn't make it. Alex Smith did not have health insurance, 
but many with insurance fare no better. Health insurance companies refer to the money they pay out in benefits, money spent on health care, as medical losses, expenses to be minimalized uh, whenever possible. Shane Patrick Boyle discovered one way which insurance insurers limit their losses. Moving from his Texas home to Arkansas to help his ailing mother, he found that his Texas plan did not cover insulin purchased out of state. Instead of leaving his mother and driving back to a Texas pharmacy to renew his prescription, he thought he could stretch out his supply while he scrambled for money to buy insulin out of pocket. He died $50 short of the $750 he needed. Shane Boyle posted an appeal on GoFundMe.com for charitable contributions to help him buy insulin. Millions like him have gone to charity sites for help, help paying for insulin and other essential medications. Some have succeeded, most do not. Audie, a cute five-year-old, was able to raise over $2,000 for a new insulin pump. Makaya Sterna, despite posting a sweet picture of her and her toddler's son, was able only able to raise half the $1,500 needed for an insulin pump when even after even after uh, multiple blackouts, her insurance company told her it was not medically necessary. Still, she did better than uh, Michaela Archibald. Only 11 people donated to her campaign for a pump, a drive that raised only 10% of what she needed. GoFundMe was started as a crowdfunding site to raise funds for ideas and dreams, weddings, donations, honeymoon registry, most of the collection efforts effects, efforts of the first year were related to such special occasions. A category for medical needs existed, but it was further down the, li the list. Now, however, there are nearly 250,000 medical appeals each year, raising a third of the $5 billion collected on the site. A symptom. Rob Solomon, the site's founder, concludes the healthcare system in the United States is really broken. The government is supposed to be there, and sometimes they are. The healthcare companies are supposed to be there, and sometimes they are. But for literally millions of people, they're not. The only thing you can really do is rely on the kindness of friends and family and community. That's where GoFundMe comes in. I was not ready for that at all when I started the company. Is this is how we want to pay for our healthcare? Medicare for all. We've been debating health care for a century. I've been involved in the debate for nearly half that time, ever since I took a bus from New York to Washington, D.C., to lobby for Senator Ted Kennedy's single-payer proposal. Kennedy's bill failed, inaugurating a period where reform proposals grew less and less ambitious, even while the problems in our health care system grew more acute. From the 1980s, through the Affordable Care Act of 2010, Democrats began each cycle accepting the last conservative proposal even while Republicans moved further away from any concept of government-funded universal health care. When the Democrats finally enacted a serious reform, the Affordable Care Act, it drew on legislation enacted by a Republican governor, Mitt Romney from Massachusetts, based on a 1994 proposal by Republican Senators John Chafee and Robert Dole. 
the dynamic of Democrats chasing Republicans to the right changed abruptly in 2016 when uh, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders made universal coverage the centerpiece of his campaign for the Democratic presidential nominee against Hillary Clinton. Sanders moved Medicare for all to the center of American politics. After a decade when there had not been a that not even been a Medicare for All proposal in the Senate, Senators Sanders, excuse me, filed a bill in 2015 without a single co-sponsor. When he refiled in 2017, there were 16 co-sponsors, and the leading Medicare for All bill in the United States, filed by Representative Jayapal of Washington State, has over 110 co-sponsors. Medicare for All has arrived but with a misleading title. While varying in detail, both the Senate and House bills are substantially different from existing Medicare. Financed by a mixture of payroll taxes, premiums, and extensive cost sharing, Medicare provides a narrow range of health benefits, requiring seniors to rely on a wraparound insurance plan or Medicaid to cover the rest. By contrast, both Medicare for All proposals are comprehensive, including pharmaceutical, dental, vision, and long-term care. Without cost-sharing, co-pays, deductibles, and without limits on benefits, they would largely negate the need for private insurance. They are also different in the funding mechanisms. While Medicare relies on trust funds fed by payroll taxes, the Sanders and Jayapal Medicare for All programs would be funded on a pay-as-you-go basis, relying on new income and other taxes. In short, Medicare for All proposals do not extend Medicare to all Americans. They create a new program, more comprehensive, but like Medicare in one crucial way, benefits are paid by the federal government. Medicare for All proposals are also distinguished from, uh, from those designed to build on the current insurance system by improving existing Medicare or by opening it up to the general public. While the latter programs would increase the share of the public with health insurance, by preserving the current for-profit private insurance system, they would maintain many of the restrictions on, ac on access that killed Alex Smith and Shan Boyle. Furthermore, maintaining the, the, uh, the fragmented insurance system would limit the types, types of financial savings possible only with the single-payer system. Finally, while Medicare for All would shift the burden of paying for health care to the ability to pay through general taxation, these other programs would continue to rely on premiums, cost sharing, and maintaining the burden on low and model, excuse me, moderate income households. This book outlines the economic case for the improved Medicare for All like that proposed by Sanders and Jayapal. But it is about politics as well as economics. After discovering, uh, discussing excuse me, the problems with the current system and demonstrating the viability of an improved Medicare for all system, the book shows how we can move toward, move forward with interim steps and alliances to, to build popular support. The key is to introduce measures that create the infrastructure for Medicare for All while demonstrating how government can contribute to a better and more efficient healthcare system. What we need are in revolutionary reforms that build Medicare for All, not patches on a failing system.
So that begins the, uh, the first part of Dr. Uh, Professor Gerald Friedman's book, A Case for Medicare for All. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with you shortly. And welcome back to Health Matters Radio. Dr. Ned Hoke today reading from A Case for Medicare for All by Gerald Friedman. He's a professor from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And we're in the first part of his book. Uh, it's, it's, it's titled uh, The Failure of Free Market Healthcare. And the other chapters in this small book, which is very readable, and I'm hoping I'm reading it accurately for you or adequately for you, why markets cannot work in healthcare, why we can afford Medicare for all, or no, excuse me, can we afford Medicare for all? From here to there, it, it, it's politics. University health, universal healthcare is better economics because it's acknowledged as human rights. So those are the chapter titles, and we'll be moving through this as far as we can through this book for this program. And again, we're looking ahead to having Dr. Friedman join us to talk about this in detail. But I thought if I shared with our listeners uh, some of the beginning of the, or some of the parts of the book, those who were interested in the topic, when we um, uh, had uh, Professor Friedman's directly, would be ready and perhaps have their questions ready. So going on in this book, in the section, The Failure of Free Market Healthcare. The American system of for-profit for insurance and medicine is unique among affluent countries and clearly does not work well. Elsewhere, governments fund a much larger share of healthcare expenditures than, than in the United States and regulate private insurance very closely. Elsewhere, everywhere else, most healthcare is paid out of uh, tax revenue and is provided by either by government agencies, such as the British National Healthcare System, or by highly regulated private bodies. From this perspective, the United States has been conducting a social experiment in health policy, testing whether it is possible to provide quality health care efficiently and equitably when directed by private individuals and entities dedicated to profit-making. If this was the intention, we can now drop the experiment because the answer is clearly no. For-profit medicine is not only inequitable, but it's inefficient. By virtually every metric, healthcare in the United States is much more expensive than elsewhere and is distributed in a much greater disparities. In uh, Bloomberg's Healthy Country a in Index, the United States rate, rated, rated, excuse me, ranked 35th in 2018, much behind other countries such as Cuba, Slovenia, and Chile and one place below its rank of 34 in 2017. The World Health Organization similarly, similarly ranks the United States as 37 out of 191 uh, countries, above Slovenia, but behind Dominican and Costa Rica, not, as, uh, not to mention France, Italy, related one and two. Furthermore, the Uni United States is sinking in the, rank in the rankings as its privatized healthcare system has been getting relatively worse. The point of healthcare spending is improved health and to extend life. On that basis, the healthcare in the United States, while much better than it was in the past, has fallen behind other countries. We would expect affluence to bring greater longevity because of better nutrition and more comfortable lifestyles. 
For, some, for the same reason, we would expect life expectancy to increase over time as countries grew richer and better able to provide quality nutrition, clean water, and improved health care. Growing affluence has been associated with longer average national life expectancy, but much less so for the United States. Among the world's wealthiest nations, we are less healthy than many poorer countries. Despite our affluence, our health care outcomes are already below average in 19, 1971. And while we are living longer and healthier lives now, improvement has been much slower than elsewhere, slower than it would be expected given our increasing wealth. While women in the United States live 6.2 years longer now than in 1971, Canadian women live 7.5 7 years longer, British women 7.8 years longer, French women 9.6 years longer. Since 1971, the United States has dropped from 19th to 34th place among members of the Organization of Economic Cooperation, the OECD, in potential years of female life. One reason for our poor health performance is that we have a higher infant mortality rate than 30 of 35 OECD members, including, have, including excuse me, indeed having children in the United States is particularly risky. At 14 deaths per 100,000 live births, U.S. Maternal, maternal mortality rate is, worst in, is the worst in the affluent world, not only twice the rate in Canada and triple that of Japan, but twice the rate of the relatively poor countries, such as Croatia, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Since the United States has many of the world's best doctors and the most advanced medical technology, it's surprising that Americans die at such high rates. The problem is that our healthcare finance system blocks many from the access to even basic healthcare and forces doctors and nurses to waste excessive time and energy dealing with recalcitrant financing systems designed to maximize profits rather than health. Much of the discussion over the last decades has been about those like Alex Smith, who without any health insurance. A study of cancer uh, treatments explains this in cold clinical terms. In the absence of health insurance coverage, many forego cancer screen screening and delay diagnosis and thus are likely to experience poor clinical outcomes. Health insurance, however, does not guarantee access to health care. Restrictions on access have become increasingly bur burdensome for many with insurance, like Shane Boyle. A recent study found that while almost all diabetes, diabetics have health insurance, 40% had rationed their test strips, 21% had rationed insulin over the past year. Private health insurers have made rationing worse, with a range of tools designed to inflate profits by limiting access to health care services. Benefits are conditional on the use of doctors and services selected by insurance companies, with financial penalties for those who use services outside of narrow networks or without prior authorization. Almost 90% of Americans with private health insurance now face deductibles and the minimum spending required before benefits begin. Since 2008, the average deductible has more than doubled reaching almost $2,000 in policies covering individuals and $3,400 in, in policies covering families. 
Virtually all insurance plans now cover expenses only after a copay or a payment by the patient before the insurance company pays anything. Copayments for office visits average around $25 and for hospital admissions, $300 a day. Since many Americans do not have significant available cash to cover emergencies, with almost half not having even $400 to hand, mounting uh, co-sharing uh, co forces, co excuse me, cost-sharing for, uh, for sh sharing forces them to choose between medical care and essential bills. Doctors complain of patients who risk their health by not following recommended medication regimens or by seeking following or seeking follow-up care. But such non-compliance is a result of tragic financial constraints rather than irresponsible act of defiance. The Federal uh, Reserve finds that over 25% of Americans have skipped medical care because of cost. Those non-compliant patients risk adverse clinical outcomes because they cannot afford the care they need. Their financial situation is more toxic than their disease. Together, foregone treatments and medications, non-adherence, kill thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Americans. This is demonstrated in the comparison of the, the share of the country's population who report they could not afford to see a doctor when sick with the country's age-adjusted mortality rate. No one should be surprised that the larger share but the larger the share unable to afford the doctor, the higher the mortality rate. Indeed, this accounts alone accounts for nearly a third of the variation in the country mortality rates in the United States. Much of the excess mortality in the United States compared to that of other affluent countries can be associated with financial barriers to access. And most of those excess deaths are people with health insurance. Measured in crass economic terms, if we value human lives at $9 million apiece, as is done by the Environmental Protection Agency, the annual economic cost of this excess mortality could be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Ironically, efforts to restrain healthcare spending by restricting access have failed catastrophically to restrain costs even while killing Americans. That's, a, that's an interesting sentence. Americans pay much more for health care than do residents of other countries, and the gap has grown <clears throat> over the past decades while health insur insurers have been restricting access to care. Health care spending in the United States, about 10000 per person, is twice as much as the rest of the OECD. Spending has risen faster in the United States since 1971, has increased as a share of gross domestic product, nearly twice as fast as in the rest of the OECD. We might be happy to pay this price if, if it came with commensurate improvements in healthcare, but as mentioned above, our life expectancy gains have been among the lowest in the OECD, and we've paid nearly $1,300 per person for every one year increase in life expectancy since 1971. Triple the price paid for the rest of the OECD, uh, $399 per person. At this rate, to equal the life expectancy of other affluent countries, we would have to raise our spending to over $14,000 per person, about triple the average of other affluent OECD countries. 
the nine, this 9,000 margin per person per year, the gap between what we would need to spend to reach the same life expectancy as other countries and what they actually spend, is one measure of the dollar cost of our inefficient healthcare system. The rising cost of healthcare interfering with everything we, else we try to do. Instead of raising wages, employers have been paying more and more for their workers' rising healthcare insurance costs. Real spending in private health insurance per employee has soared since 2007, absorbing an additional $5,000 per employee in family plans, money unavailable to pay workers so they could pay for housing, vacation, schooling for their children, or put food on the table. From 2007 to 2014, healthcare spending by middle-class households climbed 25%, while Spending on housing fell by 6%, food by 8%, and clothing by 19%. The rising cost of health care not only is killing Americans, but is undermining their children's education. It's also bankrupting them. About 20% of Americans had medical debt in 2014, leading to too many cases of bankruptcy. Nearly a million Americans went bankrupt in 2017, and as many as 60% of these bankruptcies were due to medical debt. Over half a million uh, bankruptcies is a steep price to pay for private health insurance. It does not have to be this way. Americans certainly know that they pay more for health care, growing numbers. Nearly 2 million in, in 2019 go, go ab abroad for care. As many as 19 million uh, med they get their medications ab abroad. It's estimating that the medical tourism market has grown 25% a year with the top destinations being Costa Rica, Mexico, India, and Southeast Asia. We can make a direct comparison for the cost of our profit, our strike debt, our, for, our private for-profit health insurance system by looking across the border to Canada, which has operated a public health system program for nearly half a century, and where the process of healthcare, the way doctors treat patients, is quite similar to the United States. While publicly funded universal coverage, Canadian healthcare spending has increased at a much slower rate, while the Canadians receive more healthcare and live longer than do their neighbors in the United States. Healthcare in Canada is so much more efficient than the United States that if we used healthcare services at the Canadian rate, and if we went to a doctor as often and used as many prescription drugs and had hospital stays as long, the U.S. healthcare spending would cost 70% more, an additional 7,000 per person, and nearly 24% of the national income. The difference is that Canadians pay lower prices for the healthcare services. They get more healthcare for less money because their system is better at promoting efficiency while controlling prices. As mentioned earlier, Americans have been debating how to pay for health care for over a century. In, in 1912, Thomas, strike that, Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party called for the protection of home life against the hazards of sickness, irregular employment, and old age through the adoption of a system of social insurance adapted to the Americans' use. Roosevelt's progressives, progressives lost the uh, 1912 election, but his cousin Franklin Roosevelt incorporated many of Theodore's ideas in his New Deal. In 1935, FDR's Committee on Economic Security recommended that national program of economic security be adequate unless it, unless it made it, unless it made, excuse me, 
national program of economic security would be in inadequate unless it made adequate provision for the insecurity arising from illness. Because of the tens of millions of families who live in dread of sickness, which forces them to sacrifice the essentials of decent living in order to, order to pay for medical services, go without needed medical care, and carry the burden of medical debt. We'll take another break. We're reading from uh, Professor Gerald Friedman's uh, uh, The Case for Medicare for All. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to uh, our show. Today we're reading from Gerald Friedman's book, Professor Friedman from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who is a professor, professor of economics. And he's written uh, this uh, potent little book called A Case for Medicare for All. And we anticipate uh, Dr. Professor Friedman will be with us uh, sometime soon ahead, but I thought in, in preparation for his visit with us, I wanted to sort of deal with some of the nitty gritty of what he's writing about so that when he speaks with us, uh, some of our listeners who are regular listeners will be able to get ready and have their questions. I think by then we'll probably be back in the studio. That's one, one hopes anyway. Um, so going on uh, with uh, Gerald Friedman's book, a Medic the, the Case for Medicare for All, by Professor Gerald Friedman. And we're reading from the first part of the book called The Failure of Free Market Healthcare. The, committer, the committee recommended federal funding for uh, public health insurance, but opposition from the American Medical Association, among others, led FDR to drop the health programs from the legislation that eventually established social, the Social Security system. Health care, he promised, would be treated separately later. Roosevelt returned to health care proposals in uh, 1944, State of the Union Address, for example, the Economic Bill of Rights, including the right to adequate medical care. While it formed the basis of the GI Bill of Rights and the veterans' health care, the public insurance for the general public was again deferred in the face of opposition from the AMA. Private health ins insurers and others. In 1945, President Truman renewed the Re Roosevelt's campaign for national health insurance and won re-election in 1948 but, but, uh, on that issue. But again, it did not happen. This repeated failure um, uh, of campaigns to, uh, for universal public provision has had lasting political consequences. The lack of a public program has fostered the development of private interests whose benefits and profits would be threaded, would be threaded by such, threatened, excuse me, by such a program. Already when Theodore Roosevelt proposed a national system, some employees, employers had begun to offer health insurance to win workers' loyalty and encourage longer job tenure. Looking to provide coverage without raising rate taxes or pushing a program through a recalcitrant Congress, FDR supported the spread of employer-provided insurance plans, even introducing a backdoor subsidy through the tax exemption for income given as health insurance. While a national plan, many unions opted to join, um, by, join, join in by negotiating for em, em, employer-provided health, health plans. Some even saw expensive private health care insurance as a way of pushing employees, employers to join in the campaign for universal public provision. 
Defeated in campaigns for universal health insurance, liberals tried a new tack, offering partial public coverage beginning with the elderly in, or, in order to demonstrate the feasibility of national insurance while building the infrastructure for a universal program. The idea was to begin with a group enjoying extensive public sympathy, with, but with little private health insurance, and then extend the program to children and others until ultimately the universal coverage was reached. One of the originate, originators of this new approach and the architect of our social security system, Robert Ball, wrote decades later, this is a quote, all of us who developed Medicare and fought for it have been advocates of universal national health insurance. We all saw insurance for the elderly as a fallback position, which we advocated solely because it seemed to have the best chance of, of politically. Although the public record contains some explicit denials, we expect Medicare to be the first step toward a universal national health insurance, perhaps a kitty care as another step. Medicare and Medicaid. As Ball suggests, liberals did not give up on national health insurance. The, the Democratic platform in 1916 pro proclaimed a right to adequate, adequate medical care, but before fo focusing on our older system, older citizens, excuse me, for whom the problem of inadequate health insurance is particularly acute, and among whom serious Ill illness strikes more most often. For them, if not yet for everyone, the convention nominated John Fitzgerald Kennedy for the presidency, promise, promising we shall provide medical care benefits for the aged as part of the time-tested Social Security insurance program. It took a struggle. Another presidential election to enact Medicare in 1965, providing health insurance coverage for the elderly along with new Medicaid programs covering the poor, including many of the elderly, Ball and his allies pushed to extend this opening. Legislation in 1972 extended Medicare to cover those with long-term disabilities, as well as those with certain diseases. Today, nearly 20% of Americans are covered by Medicare at a cost substantially lower than that of providing coverage through private insurance. The program has contributed to dramatic improvement in the lives of the elderly and the disabled with a substantial increase in the expectancy, life expectancy of the former, and especially for the very old. Relatively, relative to their, uh, to their counterparts in other affluent countries, elder Americans are significantly healthier than younger Americans. The life expectancy gap between residents of the United States and those living in other countries peaks right before the eligibility age for Medicare, and then narrows significantly. By their 80s, Americans are expected to live as long as people in Canada. Medicare works on both sides of the 49th parallel. For a few years in the 1970s, it seemed like that Ball's strategy would bear fruit, with the only remaining issue being the choice between a completely public program or one with space remaining for private health insurance. But after the extension of Medicare to the disabled in 1972, little progress was made for nearly 40 years. With Democrats abandoning Ball's vision of universally available social insurance and accepting Republicans' proposals, measures to, give it, to gain universal access were uh, repeatedly beaten back. The breakthrough came in 2010 when, um, when the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, ACA, 
was enacted after a Herculean struggle. The first significant ex expansion of public health care coverage in nearly half a century, the ACA introduced significant reforms of private health insurance. These included regulations to prevent some of the insurance insurers' worst practices, a major expansion of the uh, Medicaid system and for the poor, and the establishment of a simplified health care market, marketplaces. While the ACA did not expand health insurance to cover all Americans, it did re reverse a 20-year decline by expanding coverage to over 20 million additional people through a mix of Medicare expansion, excuse me, Medicaid expansion, and subsidies to help lower, low and middle-income middle Americans purchase private health insurance. Regulatory reforms such as forbidding denial of coverage for pre-existing conditions were, were also often major boons for less healthy Americans. Financed with a tax on high-income households and re reductions in overpayments for private uh, Medicare Advantage uh, plans, the bill also uh, marked a major redistribution toward low- and middle-income households. Most on the left and virtually all Democrats defend the ACA for these accomplishments, yet few have been enthusiastic. Tens of millions are still without insurance and the coverage provided has been disappointing. The ACA pegs subsidies to the cost of so-called silver insurance plans whose, actual, whose actuarial value, the share of medical expenses are covered, is only 70%. By limiting the cost to the insurance company and the low actuarial value limits the cost of the government subsidies at the expense of subscribers who on the average face deductibles of $4,000. Worse, the rising cost of health care is driving up these deductibles and the price of other function, forms of, of cost sharing in both ACA plans and all other forms of private health insurance despite the plethora of measures intended to control costs by tweaking payment methods, coverage uh, provisions, the ACA has largely failed to control rising costs beyond the continuing efforts of insurance to lower them by discouraging utilization through rising cost sharing. The Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services now projects that Healthcare spending will rise over 5% a year for the next decade, significantly faster than income. The critics predicted at the time the ACA has failed to maintain affordability because it did not address the real cost drivers pushing up U.S. healthcare spending, the drive for profits, and the inefficiency that this produces in our fragmented private healthcare system. Rather than building a popular movement to force congressional action, the law's architects secured its passage by trading away measures that threatened major st stakeholders, drug companies, insurers, and hospitals. The ACA experience demonstrates, however, that the only way to control health care costs and allow real universal access is by addressing precisely these uh, stakeholders, their inefficiency, and their profits. The failure to achieve universal coverage through public uh, provision did more than reflect the politics of healthcare in America. It also shaped those, these politics and by focus, focusing the growth of industries and groups profiting from the persistence of private insurance. In, in Theodore Roosevelt's time, opposition came from doctors who profited from the system of private healthcare 
as well as those ideologically opposed to government intervention. By the time of FDR administration, these had, jo had been joined by health insurance companies, as well as some employers and unions who had established private plans. By the 1970s, pharmaceutical and medical device companies had joined the opposition, uh, fearing that public program would restrict their opportunities for profit. Over time, these interests have grown. Entire industries are now being created to profit from our, our private healthcare system, not only in the areas of medical devices and pharmaceuticals and health insurance, but also in relation to hospital networks, standalone imaging, laboratories, urgent care clinics, and the development of electronic medical records, progressing and collection, the financial analysis of health savings accounts, the private health insurance um, companies' revenues are over, already are over 2% of the national income in 1971, or 7% now. We have developed trillions of dollars worth of vested interests in resisting public health care finance system, with billions and billions being made in profits. If an ob 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 omnipotent observer were to uh, choose one program as a model for reform, uh, reforming American health care, it would be Medicare. It has improved health for the elderly, re reduced financial stress, while controlling costs more effectively than does private health insurance. For most of its industry, most of history, excuse me, since 1970, Medicare has controlled per capita costs uh, more, effect more effectively in than private insurers with spending per enrollee, enrollee rising 1.5 percentage points per year or less from 1970 to 2016. Over the same period, the Medicare benefits have increased, notably with the prescription drug program. Private insurance benefits have been cut by, increasingly, by increasing deduct deductions and overall cost sharing. Medicare's success has been discounted, however, by policymakers and, and economists who have focused on the continuing, continued cost increases due to the rising and aging Medicare population, rather than on its success in containing price inflation. Paradoxically, Medicare has become more expensive because the population of population aging and, and longevity, which are marks of success. With some significant exceptions, economists distrust Medicare because it violates their, their, their bias toward choice. Trained in orthodox neoclassical economics with an ingrained faith in the efficiency of markets and market competition, many of the new health economists reject Medicare because it compels enrollment and then uses market power to, co to compel providers to accept a price list for services provided. Ignoring Medicare's success, they have promoted a choice in health insurance in the provision of health care based on the idea that competition will encourage insurers and, provide, and providers to become more efficient, while giving consumers, otherwise known as the sick and disabled, the opportunities to choose the type and level of health care service they want, as if by choosing the brand of soda or morning coffee. They make patients meaningful consumers. Economists recommend reducing the insurance function, giving healthcare consumers the skin in the game with higher cost sharing and co-pays and deductibles. Patient choice, they, they promise, will save money by discouraging overuse 
of, of health care and encouraging insurance and providers to bring down the cost of, of care to increase their profit margins. By treating health care as a commodity, the, the uh, promoting choice, the markets uh, turn in, they tune, turn in health care policy rewards the young and the healthy at the expense of the sick and the old. At the same time, introducing market mechanisms and profit immediately rises costs. Before 1970s, the health insurance was highly regulated, often with a single blue cross blue shield plan offering simple coverage to everyone at a uniform price without regard for the pre-existing conditions. Economists joined with insurance companies to campaign for deregulation and to allow for profit companies to compete with the blue, the blue, blue cross blue shield companies on the assumption that the competition and the profit motive will lead to greater efficiency. The economists were wrong. Again, we've been reading from uh, Gerald Friedman's book, A Case for Healthcare for All. I expect Professor Friedman will be with us uh, at some upcoming program here at Health Matters Radio. We're looking for uh, uh, you to stay with us uh, on a regular basis here Thursdays at 2 o'clock. We're always happy to have you. And if you ever want to make a comment or have a request for our program, please give us an email at ksvyhealth at gmail.com. And until next week, I bid you well.